It's been a while since Dakota's preached, and I'm so excited to have him back, and he's going to continue our series in Mark. Thank you. How's it going, everybody? That was lame. Can I get a better hello than that? Yeah, there you go. I like that. Nice. Um, as Tyler said, we're going to continue in the Gospel of Mark. I'm going to be going over Mark 3, 7 through 35. I'm going to call this one Popularity Pitfalls. Popularity Pitfalls. Uh, happy spring, everybody, right? It's trying, at least, to be out there. I work outside, so this past Wednesday, um, it was just completely dumping and I was in a bucket truck, which is where you want to be. You just want to be closer to the clouds, because like, let's just get it out of the way. Let's just get as wet as possible. But I mean, it was raining so hard that I saw animals lining up two by two, so. If you didn't like that one, you're not gonna like my sermon. One bit. Um, so I'm gonna read Mark 3, 7 through 35. It's a lot of verses. Don't worry, I'm not reading the entire Bible. But I'm gonna start right now. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him before the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them to not make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to them whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, for whom he named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach, and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Spoiler alert. I don't know if you uh, plan on reading the book, but that's a big one. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons, and he called to them, and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man, then indeed may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven. Well, will be forgiven the children of man, and whoever blasphemes they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but it is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he was an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, you are your mother, your, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he said to them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother, my sister, and my mother. Will you pray with me? Dearly Father, we welcome you into this place. We are so grateful for what you're doing in Blaine. We love you. We are so excited for uh, the new faces that keep coming into this building. Lord, just be with us in this moment, and just, um, we love you. Amen. Okay, so Jesus is at a point in his ministry where he is the most popular he has ever been. I mean, there are people coming from all over just to see him in person. 
Crowds are even walking up to three days just to be in presence. Now, I'm not talking a couple hundred people. I'm saying this man is bringing in tens of thousands of folk. To use an example, if Jesus was starting a music career, okay, he wouldn't be in the corner of some cafe singing songs he only knows the words of while you sip a latte and you talk over him. No, Jesus is filling out football field-sized stadiums, and you are transfixed on his every word. Just, You know what I mean? Like, people have posters, people are crowd surfing. He has sold so many albums that they haven't gone gold or frankincense, they've gone myrrh. <laughs> okay, good, that landed. That was, I was worried about that one. And don't worry, that's my corny Christian joke of the day. There won't be any myrrh jokes. <laughs> it's funny. Looking at the amount of heads in the crowd, you would come to the conclusion that Jesus is successful, right? I mean, we do this with celebrities. Um, our influencers on TikTok or Instagram or YouTube, the more followers they have, the more popular they become, which leads them to be successful. However, regardless of the amount of reach Jesus had, his goal was not to be popular. He recognized the dangers of popularity. Jesus's primary mission was not to be popular, but to intimately disciple. Now, people had indeed traveled near and far to be in the presence of Jesus, but their intentions were not solely on hearing his teachings. A large majority of the crowd's main pursuit was actually bodily healing. Verses 9 through 10 says, And he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him before the crowds, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. Have you guys ever... Uh, you guys ever played a game before? You ever heard of this? These things called games? They're really fun. Kids are raving about them. A lot of fun. So that's good. You guys like having fun. So anyways, there was this game that I used to play in youth group. It was called Telephone. And you would get a long line of kids together, and they would stand in a line like this, like the before, before drill sergeant, just like so. All right? And the first person would have a word in his mind. Now, there was a time where telephones were used for communication. That's a crazy concept. If you guys need time to like process that, we have people in the back that are ready to pray for you. So the person in the front of the line will whisper a word to the, to, the right, to the right of them, and that person will receive the word. Now, there's no redo, so you get one shot with this. So you whisper the word into their ear, and you don't go, what do you say? You know what I mean? If you don't hear it properly, whatever word you hear, you pass it along the line, and it goes to the next person, and so on and so forth. And to the point where they get to the end of the line, and the, and the last person's like, all right, what was the initial word? And the, per the person goes, all right, it was ice cream. And the person at the end goes, I got iridocyclitis. Like, what does that even mean? <laughs> and that's exactly what happens. Like, you, you, you mishear, and it goes along the line, and it goes down and down, and it gets muffled. And we're seeing a very similar situation occur with people's perception of Jesus' ministry. All over, people start to tell everyone they know about a man who has supernatural abilities to bring sight to a blind man, have a crippled walk, heal leprosy, and countless other miraculous healings. This would capture the attention of anyone looking for a quick miracle before really knowing anything about Jesus and his true mission on earth. The crowd's desire to have their means net, bodily healing, came before to know the truth of who he is. Our Lord did heal physically, but that was only secondary for what he came to do. He healed to show his power in the spiritual realm, but mostly focused on soul healing, and that is because Jesus does want to heal our bodies, but more importantly, 
He wants to heal our souls. In verse 9, it says that Jesus was asking for his disciples to have a small boat ready for him before they crush him, emphasizing the aggressiveness of the people's specific needs trying to get met. This only led Jesus to flee from them, but not to escape from them entirely. You see, Jesus wanted to position himself in a way where the crowd would have to hear him without their misconceptions deafening them to his message. They wanted their bodies healed. He wanted to preach. And this is another thing that popularity does. It can distort a message and heighten something secondary, making it the most important thing in people's eyes, and they end up missing the point. Have you guys ever been to one of those job fairs or when you're in high school career days and you're so excited because you're able to get out of class, all right, and you're not really excited about like the, you know, going to the booths because the people who are actually there, they sit at the booths and they really take their time. They're really excited for the next generation. They want to really reach out the generation. They have their flyers and all the pamphlets and all these kids are like, where's the swag? Where's the free stuff? You know what I mean? They, they run to each booth. They grab lanyards. They grab pens. They grab hats. Sometimes you grab like a shirt that says Boeing on it, but you're never going to work at Boeing. You're going to wear it like a, on a lazy Sunday at home, and you're going to get barbecue sauce on it. You're like, I'm never going to wear this out. Like, who cares? <laughs> and they don't even listen to what the people are trying to talk, tell them about. They just want what they can get, and that's what's happening here. People, Jesus has basically a booth and he's trying to talk to you about what he can give you and people are just wanting to get that free miracle swag the on-demand healings now this is where it gets good verses 13 through 19 is where jesus appoints his disciples and he came up on the mountain and called to them who he desired and they came to him and he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, Sons of Thunder. If anyone wants to start a Christian biker gang, Sons of Thunder is the name. We're not changing it. <laughs> Andrew, the Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Jesus empowers them to preach and even have the authority to drive out demons. It's interesting that Jesus leaves a large crowd of people to just be with 12 guys. I believe this shows Jesus' discipleship model for his ministry. He is uninterested with numbers and more focused on the connection. I mean, even look at the way he appointed 12. He took them on a hike away from the crowds to appoint them. It wasn't in front of a giant audience where they could be recognized by thousands. It was between them and Jesus, a conversation rather than a convention. What's even more interesting is Jesus left thousands to appoint 12 so they could reach thousands. Jesus' goal was to ensure that the 12 knew the heart of his mission and shared an intimate relationship with him first before being sent out to discipling others. Now, the 12 are not randomly selected. These guys had been witnesses to the power of Jesus firsthand. He had broken bread with them, walked with them, healed in front of them. I mean, these guys would be the first to tell you that this is the Son of God without any hesitation. Jesus did not select random people from the crowd and say, here, come here, come here. Right here, this guy. What's your name? Yeah, this is my apostle right here. No, 
What he wanted to do is he wanted to have a relationship first, not a spokesperson whose heart is unaltered by his presence. Jesus wants pastors, not promoters. We can apply this intimacy over popularity model to the way we do life with Jesus today. Now let me ask you a few questions for us to think on. Do you have an intimate daily relationship with Jesus first? Or are you seeking a platform before his presence? Are you being discipled by someone? Or are you only looking to disciple others? I'll ask again. Do you have an intimate daily relationship with Jesus first? Or are you seeking a platform before his presence? Are you being discipled by someone? Or are you only seeking to disciple others? Expect answers by the end of the sermon. I'm just kidding. Let's move on to verses 11 and 12. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them to not make him known. Why did Jesus tell the demons to can it when they were proclaiming him as his proper title? Shouldn't he be acknowledging the truth regardless of the source? No, the, the answer is no, guys. Popularity or being well-known gives ill-intentioned people, or in this case, demons, a motive to be associated with you because of your influence. Even though what they were saying wasn't necessarily wrong, Jesus is the Son of God, it was their intentions he silenced. You see, the demons wanted people to think that he and them were on the same side. If they acknowledged who he was and he validated their testimony, it would appear as if they were in cahoots having everything the demons do fall under the umbrella of Jesus' ministry. Their goal was to taint his ministry and his mission. And we know there is an enemy who would like nothing more than to corrupt the image of God for his own gain. In our lives, popularity can provide a foothold for the enemy to cloud our vision of God's mission for us, causing us to seek popularity or the approval of man rather than God. I mean, I can relate to that. Has anyone felt that before, trying to seek approval of man before God? How many times have I been like, okay, I'm going to completely change my entire personality just so this one person will like me. Like, whatever I need to do, I will talk differently, I will dress differently, anything I need to do, just get this one person to like me. I mean, we see this with, with our Hollywood stars and musicians when they're at the height of their popularity, but they're incredibly unhappy. They find themselves turning to substance abuse. We find politicians, the more influence and they have, the more popularity for, there's more opportunity for corruption and what bads, bad deeds they're willing to seek just to stay popular. I mean, that's what I was wanting to do. The more people who liked me, the more popular I was. It always left to me feeling empty, though, because it means nothing. My identity is not found in what they perceive of me, but that's what I was trying to chase. I mean, even with the elections, I mean, just to get elected and gain power and keep most votes, they slander the opponents, they pay somebody off, they, they can cheat, they steal information. It's nothing they're willing to do to maintain or elevate their own status. We've all heard the saying, absolute power corrupts absolutely, but I would go even fur further to the level where popularity opens the door for corruption if we are not careful to keep our hearts intimately connected to Jesus. This is the difference 
between Jesus and the world. He has no interest in being popular. His worth isn't wrapped around how many people like him. Jesus cares about a relationship with you. He wants you to focus on bearing his image in the world, not building your own image in the eyes of others. Jesus once again encounters opposition in verses 22 through 26. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem are saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him, and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Jesus deals with the accusations of him being possessed by Beelzebub with a clear argument. Satan would never create anarchy in his own house. If Jesus was who they said he was, why would Satan inconvenience himself by casting out demons he wanted there in the first place? Satan is the ruler of fear, and with fear comes control, and Satan would never allow one of his evildoers to cast out demons and essentially do his own work. In verse 27, Jesus makes it very clear what is happening to the scribes. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods, unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus is stronger than Satan. If you need to take anything away from this sermon, let it be that. When you look how great and powerful and majestic and strong our God is, you can't make Satan small enough. Jesus entered into the devil's house and bound him. He had him bound even during the days of his ministry, making it possible for him and his disciples to cast out demons. So we don't have to try and worry about trying to bind the devil. We have the, we have the authority and power of God to cast out demons because our Lord Jesus made that possible. With Jesus now having answered the scribes' claims against him, he issues them a warning about their sentiment. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. The act of committing an unforgivable sin and mention is, is blaspheming the Holy Spirit. The severity of this matter is mentioned again in Matthew 12, 31-32. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. As I mentioned earlier, Jesus is warning them of the accusation they are making towards him, which shows they have not committed the unforgivable sin, giving Jesus an opportunity to warn them. Kenneth Bearding, professor of New Testament at Talbot School of Theology, explains blaspheming the Holy Spirit like this. Thus, the unforgivable sin of blasphemy against the Spirit is not a wayward word uttered in a moan of anger, nor is it some other dramatic sin like murder or suicide or adultery. Rather, as stated before, blasphemy against the Spirit is ongoing hardening of your heart against the Holy Spirit who is trying to lead you to repent of sin and believe in Christ. It is an issue of the heart that manifests in one's words and actions. 
Someone who hardens his or her heart against the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit, who refuses to repent of sin and turn to Christ in faith, has committed a sin that can never be forgiven. The person who repeatedly and without repentance rejects the Holy Spirit's testimony to Christ is the one who has blasphemed the Holy Spirit. That sin is the only sin that will never be forgiven. The Pharisees were rejecting God by attributing his works done through the Holy Spirit to the power of the devil. They were attempting to twist what they had seen with their own eyes and harden their hearts to what the Holy Spirit was doing. Now let's talk about Jesus' family. We'll go to 20, verse 21, and then we'll go through 31 to 35. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he's out of his mind. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Verse 35 really stands out to me. For, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Has anyone ever heard the quote, uh, family is everything? It's often found on a wood plank sold at Crate and Barrel for $70. <laughs> family is the place where we learn to have relationships with others. It teaches us how to be future fathers or mothers, how to, how to deal with conflict or, or how to love or even how to call shotgun properly on the way to the grocery store. Now, there may be some of us in the audience who don't have this kind of relationship with their families. They can't relate to that live, laugh, love family slogan. The pain we feel at difficult family dynamic all the more points to the level of importance our world places on those relationships. In verse 21, Jesus' family is so concerned with him that they think he is out of his mind, and that is because Jesus has given such an intense amount over to his ministry, he's barely eating and he's barely sleeping. They want to restrain him because they think he's out of his mind, and they are deeply concerned for his well-being. This shows the love of Jesus' family for him, even if it is misguided in this moment. So when Jesus is teaching and is told that his mother and his brothers were outside, you would expect that Jesus would stop what he was doing and he'd get up and he'd go. Actually, the opposite happens. Jesus deliberately responds with this number. Who are my mother and my brothers? And I, looking, looking at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Yeah, no, Jesus, your actual family is outside. They're here for you. They're deeply concerned for your well-being. You know, family is very important, so you should go out and see them. I mean, they are your family. What was Jesus thinking when he said this? Was he actually so sleep-deprived and so hungry that he was delusional about his own family bonds? No. Jesus was held on by a stronger tie than his own biological family. Jesus held his earthly family dear to his heart, but dearer than his own family 
is the brothers and sisters and mothers in the family of God. He makes it clear that even though his family is at the door knocking for his attention, the ties that bind us to the relationship of our brothers and sisters of Christ and the relationship between God our Father are greater than our own biological family. So regardless of whatever upbringing you have had, whether you were loved properly or improperly, you were welcomed and loved and seen and cared and thought of and missed by the very people who are sitting in this very room. These are your brothers and sisters, and we have a father who's willing to lose sleep and go hungry just to be with you. What an incredible revelation. I mean, what a great God we actually have. A God who's willing to put everything aside just to be with us. Now, I'm not saying go and be completely disrespectful to your family, okay? Kids, you're not exempt from that either, right? Listen to your parents. It even says in 1 Timothy 5.8, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. What I am saying is that if there is a conflict between God's demand for our life and our families, we must choose God. We must put God's call of discipleship first. Jesus does not care about every seat filled. He doesn't care about gathering the biggest crowd on Sunday. He wants earnest hearts seeking him. He is not interested on how well-liked you are or the image you have crafted for yourself. He wants you to reflect his image to the world. Popularity is not his intention for us. In fact, his word tells us that we will suffer for his namesake. But we don't have to go down that road alone. He has given us an intimate relationship with himself and a family in Christ to do life with. A church family to lean on in tough times and to rejoice with in victory and groweth daily as disciples. So I invite you today, in this time, as we end in worship and as we end in prayer, to reflect on your life and, and what is God saying to you directly in this moment. Is God calling you to step out into that uncomfortable zone and to actually be vulnerable with someone and say, hey, I'm not doing well at all. Like I, I know I barely know you, but I feel like I need prayer in this moment. I feel like God's calling me to actually disciple or, or to be disciple. What is God calling you in this time? Is God maybe saying to you, you've been focusing too much on your own image? Have I been trying to put on the right clothes and say the right things to these people so they like me? Instead of actually being bold enough to stand firm and know what is truth and that your image is built in him? And that he loves you and he cares for you and he misses you and he wants you and he just wants to have you by his side again? What is God calling you today? In this moment of prayer as we end and as Brian comes up and leads us in worship, I ask you to ask those questions, to not just listen to me pray, but to actually have a conversation with our Father who loves you and was willing to be hungry and sleep-deprived to be with you. There will be people in the front if you need to be prayed with, or if you just need this moment just to be prayed by yourself, we absolutely will. Let's close in prayer.
God, we love you. We want to be close to you, Lord. See our hearts, how we just miss you, Lord. Lord, in this time, I don't, I don't know what anyone's thinking in this room, but if you, if you see someone who needs, needs to be close to you or, or has a confession or, or anything, Lord, I just ask that, that you just give them the right words to say or make them bold in this moment. Lord, I thank you for the people who are in this room and the people who are watching online. Let them know that they are seen and they are missed and they are thought of and they're cared for and that they do not have to do this world alone. As lonely as this world tries to make us feel and as, as much as the enemy tries to convince us that we are weak, Lord, you are strong. You are so strong, Lord, and you are majestic and you're beautiful and we love you. We thank you for what's going on in Blaine. We ask that a continuous fire of Holy Spirit fire comes in this town as 500 new houses get built up, Lord, that people, when they enter in Blaine, Lord, they feel that there is something different about this town. And they don't have to come into our church, but whatever doors they walk into, Lord, that they encounter just the grace and the love of you, Lord. We ask that. We thank you, Lord. We praise you.